my friends. Welcome back to the Robust Human Podcast. We used to be the Kokoro Movement Podcast, but we have rebranded. And so I haven't recorded a podcast in a long time. The last one that I recorded was with uh, Dr. Joe Lavaca, and that was last year, I believe. And so it's been a while. I've been working on a lot of stuff, um, really kind of expanding my practice, my personal massage practice quite a bit. Um, working with a lot of elite athletes, um, a lot of Olympians, which is really cool, um, most specifically in running, but I've also uh, worked on a fair share of swimmers. And so, you know, I've been really focused on my career rather than the podcast. And I have accumulated enough experience and enough knowledge to where I feel as though it is time to... Um, create my own education course on uh, corrective manual therapy is what I have begun to call my practice because there's the uh, massage therapy profession is uh, really interesting and we tend to uh, kind of ruin a lot of words like uh, integrated and uh, therapeutic um, and a bunch of other words kind of like that to describe the process in which we help people get out of pain and out of dysfunction and help them perform better, which is the main goal of my practice. I just want them to run fast or swim fast without pain. That's it. And so I have, uh, over the years, learned quite a bit from the most intelligent people on earth as it pertains to my professions of strength coaching and massage therapy. And so I have, in my opinion, successfully integrated all of these different ideas and all of these different modalities into um, one single practice that uh, flows fluidly through all these different modalities and gets people performing better, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the underlying goal of what we're trying to accomplish here. So um, my education course is going to be the last weekend of May. Um, let me double check and see uh, what date that is real quick, the specific dates. Um, it's going to be in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, and it's going to be the weekend of May 28th and May 29th. And I'm really excited about it. Um, there's, I work with a lot of uh, massage therapists that are kind of stuck. They're, they're stuck in uh, this reality of traditional uh, massage therapy education, which is, in my opinion, uh, remedial at best. And there is um, a time and place for that. Um, but when it comes to elite athletes who are training incredibly hard to be the best, like on earth, we owe it to them to do the best that we possibly can to make them perform better. And I have a pretty high standard for the massage therapy profession. I believe that we should be the foremost experts on soft tissue therapies. And I believe that we should also have a assessment for those soft tissues. And in my opinion, the assessment that we should be using is uh, neurological muscle testing because there is paths of dysfunction that most elite athletes have. And they have these paths of dysfunction because of how often they are training. They are training an absurd amount. Like, for instance, uh, the average elite runner runs about 80 miles a week. And that varies based on the runner. Um, some runners uh, do better with more volume. Some runners do less. Um, you know, I have some runners that are running 60 miles a week and performing just fine. I have other runners that are running 120 miles a week. 
and are running just fine. Um, you know, when I was running a lot, I was averaging 12 miles a week. And that's a lot for me. <laughs> you know, maybe the above, an above average person uh, would be running maybe 20 miles a week, but that's above average. You know, most people have jobs, they have lives, they have families, they have kids, they have dogs, they have, you know, like I said, jobs, like it, it takes up a lot of time, you know, to just go out and just run for an hour or more. That's a lot. That's a lot. And it's an absurd amount of uh, dedication to even run that much. And then you multiply that by four. That's a lot. That is a lot of running. So then you start to uh, kind of break it down a little bit. The uh, average runner, you know, they, so I'm going to rewind. Kind of, so this is uh, my third attempt. I'm just going to be completely transparent here. This is my third attempt at uh, recording a podcast where I'm just talking to myself. There's really nobody else here except my dogs, and they don't know what I'm saying. And, you know, my brain sometimes tends to think faster than I can talk. And, uh, you know, it just gets crazy. So we're going to break down running and why we need to do assessments on these runners when they come in. We can't just massage all of them the same way. That is an absurd idea. And it drives me crazy. Um, so when you're running, your body weight is increasing by two and a half times to five times, depending on your level of fatigue. Okay. And so any, like anybody that's running like 80 miles a week, I think I did the math. Um, and it's not exact here. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head because I don't have those notes in front of me, but, um, if you're running 80 miles a week, you're, you're taking roughly a hundred thousand steps per week. Okay. So if you can imagine somebody who is 120 pounds, 120 pound runner. So I'm thinking of one that I've been working with specifically. Okay. So you take a 120 pound runner and they start out their run and they're 360 pounds on each footstep, right? And then as they start to fatigue, that becomes 480 pounds, right? And then at the end of their run, if they did a long run, then they're around 600 pounds. Their foot, ankle, and knees are absorbing 600 pounds of force per step. And so then if you average that out for the whole entire week, these runners are absorbing tens of millions of pounds of force with their foot, ankle, and knees every week. That's absurd. And so they have become masters of adaptation. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that they have muscles that are fatiguing. And when those muscles fatigue, then other muscle groups tend to pick up the slack. Okay. So, uh, one of my favorite educators ever, his name's Dr. Perry Nicholson, shout out to stop chasing pain. Uh, he said that the body doesn't think in, or the brain doesn't think in individual muscles. It thinks in movement solutions. All right. So my theories right now are, is that a lot of these elite runners have way more movement solutions than the average person, which is why they can run so fast for so long. I mean, just to give you an idea, uh, when I was running a lot, I was averaging in between a 12 and a 13 minute mile. You know, I'm a big dude. Um, I'm in, depending on how I'm eating, I'm anywhere between 260 to 270 pounds at five feet 11. You know, I'm not, I'm not the leanest person on earth. Uh, but so just getting out there and running four miles is a big achievement for somebody of my girth. 
Okay. And so, uh, I'm averaging, like I said, in between a 12 and 13 minute mile, these, uh, collegiate athletes that I've been working with are running a 5k in 13 minutes and change. Like what? That is absurd. And so they have more movement solutions than we do, which means they have more compensations than we do, which means that when they come in and they're in pain somewhere, they have figured out how to run that fast and that long for weeks at a time. So, you know, doing the math once again, like we're, we're just going to say on average, these runners are running a hundred thousand steps per week. So if they come and see you every two weeks, they've already taken 200,000 steps at two and a half times to five times their body weight. Like that's crazy. And so the amount of adaptation that has had to occur for them to run in between 80 to 120 miles a week is absurd. And we as massage therapists are still in just the dark ages as far as information. We, I, I work with massage therapists that are still massaging and quote unquote stretching the IT band. The IT band takes, it takes 2000 pounds of force per square inch to stretch the IT band a quarter of an inch. Like we're not doing anything to the IT band with our hands. And when we tell runners to use a foam roller on their IT, their IT band, we're not stretching the IT band. It's not happening. So you need to understand how the body works, how the body functions. You need to understand the difference in the tissues of the body. Okay. So the, one of my favorite education courses of all time, functional range conditioning, um, he talks about, you know, forces, the language of cells. So basically the thickness of the tissues depends largely on the force that those tissues have to absorb. Okay. So muscles absorb a lot less force than ligaments, which absorb a lot more force than tendons and, you know, which absorb a lot less force than bone. Okay. So bone is the thickest tissue in your body. Okay. And so like the IT band is significantly thicker than the quads or the hamstrings because it has to absorb an exponential amount of more force. And so just us using our thumbs on the IT band isn't stretching anything. What we are doing is improving the gliding of those tissues because those tissues are supposed to glide on each other. Okay. And so if those tissues aren't gliding very well, then they get stuck. And if they get stuck, then all other uh, manner of things begin to happen, right? And so that is usually due to a compensation pattern, right? So once again, talking about the IT band, one of the main problems with the IT band is that it's glued to the vastus lateralis, which is the quad on the outside of the leg. All right. And so why is that tight? Well, speaking on runners, and this is the same for swimmers as, as well, that those two sports are really heavy hip flexor activities. All right. And so there's uh, degrees of compensation that happen with the hip flexor. Right. So the hip flexor fails first and the muscle that tends to pick up the slack first is the tensor fasciolata. Okay. And so when the tensor fasciolata is doing vastus lateralis stuff instead of tensor fasciolata stuff, 
it becomes very unhappy because it's doing the work of a, a huge muscle compared compared to the vastus lateralis the tensor fascia lata is a very tiny muscle okay and so the tensor fascia lata is uh and the glute med are the muscles that blend into the it band all right so what i find is when i am working on uh these runners and that vastus lateralis is really tight and i can't get it to loosen up within a minute then i immediately go to tensor fascia lata right the tfl and so the next line of defense when it comes to hip flexion is the iliacus okay and so the iliacus is notorious for causing low back pain because it will cause a pretty substantial amount of anterior pelvic tilt it is a short and powerful muscle and when it gets upset it gets upset okay and so then the next line of defense from the iliacus is the psoas. Okay. And so all of those muscles are intended to do different things. And when they start doing the job of a muscle that they're not supposed to be doing, when they're not supposed to, um, hold on. If they're doing the job of a different muscle group that is substantially larger, they tend to get upset. The way that I explain it to my clients is, it's the only kid in the group doing the group project. Okay. And so when you go in and release these tissues, you are neurologically correcting a dysfunction in the brain. Okay. So that brings me to uh, the first topic of discussion. And one of the most mind bending concepts that I learned early on in my massage therapy career. So, you know, when the rock blades first came out, shout out to rock tape, and they have these rock blades, which are instrument assisted soft tissue manipulation devices. Okay. And so basically metal scraping tools, that's all they are. Right. And so I went to that, one of the first education courses they had for those rock blades, which was down in Tucson. And um, they, the instructor said, right off the bat we are not working with muscles we are working with the nervous system and that shook me i remember trying to wrap my head around that concept all weekend long and then all the way home and from tucson to flagstaff arizona that's a four-hour drive and the reason why it shook me so much is in the community college that I went to, all of the anatomy and physiology classes that I attended, when, like, and just the massage therapy school specifically, we are taught the exact opposite. We are taught the exact opposite. And once you start to understand that muscles are controlled by the nervous system and that a hypertonic muscle or a trigger point or a knot or whatever you want to call it is a threat response, then you can understand why you aren't getting the results that you think you should be getting. Because in massage therapy school, we are taught to find a tight muscle and rub on it. And then if that doesn't work, then we go deeper with into the tissues with our thumbs. And then if that doesn't work, then we go deeper with our forearm. And if that doesn't work, then we go deeper with our elbows. And so if you, when you start to understand how the human body functions, and more importantly, how the human body compensates for a muscle dysfunction or a pain dysfunction. Those are two different things. We'll get to that later. When you start to understand how the human body compensates and the concept that pain isn't where something started, it's where it ended up, then 
you start to realize that I'm working on the wrong stuff. And that's why I'm not getting the results that I want. Okay. So muscles that are hypertonic are usually doing the work of other muscles. And most of the time they are doing the work of bigger muscle groups. So it's a smaller muscle doing bigger muscle job. And you can imagine how uncomfortable that would be. Okay. And so if that compensation pattern continues, then it becomes a bigger problem because that's when you start to create fibrotic tissue. And I think this, so this is really important. Okay. So if we have a uh, movement dysfunction because of an overworking of a muscle. So basically when you've hit muscle failure, but you continue to go anyway. Okay. So when that happens, those bigger muscles fail. So we'll use pull-ups as an example. Okay. So when you're doing a high number of pull-ups and those lats fail, those lats are the primary pulling muscle, then a smaller muscle group that doesn't do the job of pulling, which would be the, the uh, upper trap in this uh, scenario. And I see this a lot and I see it a lot because I used to coach uh, CrossFit, right? And so some CrossFit workouts have anywhere from 100 to 150 pull-ups in a workout, okay? And so when people are going from doing five to 10 pull-ups in a row to doing one pull-up at a time, the primary pull-up muscles are no longer doing the pull-up. Smaller muscle groups are doing that. And usually, like I said before, it's the upper trap, which is not a pull-up muscle. Okay. And sometimes when that muscle fails, the next line of defense in that one is the bicep, which is a synergist. And it is not strong enough to continue to do pull-ups in that manner. Okay. And so if that pattern continues because it hasn't been corrected, then the upper trap becomes hypertonic for a long period of time. Okay. And so this goes back to the forces, the language of cells thing, right? So uh, using the pull-up for an, as an example, again, so if you are doing the proper amount of pull-ups, based on the amount of strength and capability that you currently have, you are doing an efficient application of force, okay? So you jump up on that pull-up bar, you pull your chin up over the bar, and you do, let's say five reps. You're capable of doing eight, but you do five, which is an appropriate number. That means that you can do more reps, right? If you do five pull-ups, when you have the capability of doing eight, then you can do five sets of five rather than three sets to failure, which would probably be more like eight, six, four. And then, you know, so anyway, I digress. So doing an appropriate amount of pull-ups is an efficient application of force. Okay. So if your upper trap is hypertonic because that lat has failed and has locked up and has essentially given that responsibility to a different muscle group, then that trap will stay hypertonic. And over a long period of time, that becomes an inefficient application of force, which means that there's going to be aberrant tissue growth. And that is what is called fibrotic tissue. Okay. And so tight muscles have less fluid exchange, meaning there is less blood flow coming in and less blood flow going out. Okay. So what happens there is that that tissue becomes fibrotic, which means that there's even less blood flow coming in and even less blood flow going out, which then makes those tissues hypoxic because that's how those blood 
or that's how those uh, muscles get oxygen is through the blood supply going to that muscle. Okay. So if the muscle becomes hypoxic, then it tightens up even more because that's a threat response. Okay. And then those peripheral nerves that are trapped in that muscle that are no longer moving freely, they have, they need their own blood supply and then they also become hypoxic. So that is the recipe for unhealthy tissue. Okay. And so one of the concepts that I stand behind is that healthy tissues don't hurt when you press on them. Okay. So if you press on tissue, regardless of the pressure and it hurts, then that is an unhealthy tissue due to a compensation pattern somewhere in the body that it is, in, in my opinion, it is imperative that we assess through muscle testing to figure out exactly what that dysfunction is and where it's coming from. Because our brain is in a dark box, a dark little cave inside our skull, right? The only access that our brain has to the outside world is our eyeballs, okay? And so our brain has to process an insane amount of information constantly, okay? So colors, movement, light, sounds, it, all kinds of stuff. There's so much stuff that our brain is filtering that we can't even comprehend it. Okay. So that's why our nose is essentially invisible. I mean, we can see it if we look at it, but that's too much information that for our brain to process. So it just makes it, it just doesn't see it on purpose because we are constantly paying attention to other things. Okay. So our brain relies on afferents or signals coming up from the body to have an understanding of what the body's doing. Okay. And so if our body is, has created a compensation pattern, if it has adapted to a stimulus that has created a compensation and then we don't correct that compensation, then that's our new way of moving, right? So if you, if you stub your toe, we've all done that, right? You're walking through the bedroom at night, stub your toe on something. It's usually the pinky toe. It's the worst, right? So, you know, unless you broke it, then it's going to be in pain for about a week, but you're walking around pain. So that's one of the things that happens in your brain map is if you have pain, that part of your body in your brain is lit up because it's an emergency. So we need to avoid that movement pattern that causes that area more pain. Okay. So if you don't start trying to walk normally through the pain, then your new compensation pattern is to walk around it. And so then that causes a whole other slew of movement patterns that is not efficient for your body. Right. So let's say that your, your arch of your foot, you start to collapse the arch of your foot on purpose. Okay. Because you don't want to load that pinky toe because it hurts. Right. So then you walk that way for a week. Okay. So then that's the, that's becomes your body's new way of walking. All right. So then that starts to cause problems on the inside of the ankle. And then that starts to cause problems on the inside of the knee. And then that could start to cause problems on the inside of your hip or on the outside of your hip or wherever. And then all of a sudden you have low back pain and then you don't know why you had low back pain because you completely forgot about that 
stub toe that you had six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, and you've been walking in this new way that entire time, right? Um, and that's just so just to kind of give you an idea of just how something as seemingly innocuous as just stubbing your toe could cause problems later on. And then now imagine a runner who runs 80 miles a week. They are running on a trail. They uh, step on a rock and it rolls their ankle. And it's not a major anchor roll, but it's enough to change their stride for the duration of that run. Right. And so then the, the next day they go out for another one and that ankle is still bothering them quite a bit. And it's, but it's not enough to quit running because let's be honest, running is painful. It's painful constantly. So then they kind of develop this new compensation pattern around this rolled ankle. And then next thing you know, that knee starts to cause problems because if the ankle stiffens up, then the knee, which is a stable joint has to become a mobile joint and it has to start moving in directions that it normally doesn't move. And so then that starts to cause problems in the, in the knee, which then translates up to the hip, right? Because it, most dysfunction goes upstream or downstream, mostly upstream. That's usually how it works. Okay. And so it's our responsibility to do an assessment, figure out what exactly is causing the pain, get rid of that dysfunction, and then remap it in the brain through manual therapy. Because like I said, the, there's, a, there's a map. I didn't really expand on this. So I'm going to expand on it right now. Okay. So your, your brain has a map of your body based on the way that you move it. Okay. And so if there is a movement pattern that's dysfunctional, that becomes the permanent pattern in your brain. And then it just starts to go on and think about other things. All right. So we uh we need to it's like almost like it's we have to launch into this investigation to figure out why the brain is choosing this movement pattern and we do that by asking the nervous system we do that by through uh afferents right so if you go to test like the hip flexor you muscle test the hip flexor and it tests weak that's a specific application of force applied to the nervous system, not necessarily the muscle, but to the nervous system to see if the brain knows how to respond to that movement. All right. And if the muscle tests weak, then that means that the brain doesn't know what to do with that specific movement. Okay. And so then from there, once you find that weak hip flexor, you can start to use your knowledge of how the human body functions to start to figure out what that dysfunction is and then ultimately correct it, okay? And all of this is just signals to the brain being like, hey, do you know what this is, yes or no? No, okay. So if I do this and uh, do that and figure out this protocol, do you know how to use this now? And it says, yes, cool. All right. So if we release this muscle and then activate this muscle, do you kind of have a picture of what this is supposed to be doing? Yes, I do. Cool. All right. So the question becomes at that point, how do we make this permanent? And so one way to do that is with uh, kinesio taping. So I, like I said before, I use rock tape, shout out to rock tape. Okay. So you tape that dysfunction and then the brain focuses on that specific part of that area 
for a longer period of time rather than when we're just working on it. All right. The most permanent way to make a change in that dysfunction is through strength. Okay. And so kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, where we have a responsibility to understand how the nervous system works. And once you understand how the nervous system works, then you can kind of understand how pain works. And then you can kind of understand how movement works with pain, because that's mostly what we're dealing with. You know, nobody's coming up to us and being like, Hey, I feel really great. I need you to do some corrective stuff, right? Which is primarily what my job is. And so we need to understand that the signal going up to the brain is of the utmost importance. Okay. And so when you are releasing tissues, you need to make sure that you are releasing the right tissues. And the first clue that you are releasing the wrong tissues is that those tissues aren't releasing. All right. So that's a big, that word release is a big trigger word for a lot of people, especially in the uh, chiropractic and, and, and uh, physical therapy space. Like, what are we releasing? Are we releasing fascia? Are we releasing the muscle? No, we are convincing the nervous system of safety because hypertonicity is a threat response. So we need to convince the brain that this muscle is now safe. Okay. And so uh, once we do that, then the person can start moving quote unquote correctly. And that's a whole other bag of beans is what correctly means to us versus what correctly means to them. And so we have this picture in our mind specifically for runners on what a runner should look like when they're running and what an efficient running stride should look like and feel like. But from my experience, a lot of these runners, even though they're the most elite runners on earth. They don't run quote unquote perfectly by biomechanical standards, but they run perfectly to them. Okay. So we're going to sit with that for a second. They run perfectly for them. Okay. So then that kind of brings us back to, uh, the nervous system and the pain experience for the individual. Okay. Which is different. So this is, this is one of the other, uh, qualms that I have with the, uh, what I'm just going to call the remedial massage therapy practice is I believe that the massage, the massage therapy, uh, session the therapeutic session that we're giving these people is individual to them. And it's even individual for that session. So it's ludicrous to me. And this is my opinion. It's ludicrous to me when a therapist massages everybody the same, especially when they're, when we're getting into elite athlete territory. Okay. So I've worked on, uh, runners that are short distance runners. So, you know, 400, 800 meters, uh, 1500 meters. I've worked on 5k and 10k athletes. I've worked on half marathoners. I've worked on marathoners and I've even worked on distance runners from, uh, 50 to 150 miles, I think is the, the most that I've, and they all are different. And each week is a different training stimulus. And so you need to cater to that person's body at that time. And at that place, I don't believe that we should be working on 
everybody the same way. That is irresponsible to me, in my opinion. I think that we need to be fluid in our approach for people. And like I said, there's a time and place for remedial massage therapy. And when it comes to these elite runners, I believe that the flushing and the quote unquote deep tissue work should come after the corrective work. Because once you uh, get good at neurological muscle testing, you can do a lot of corrective work in a short amount of time, 20, 30 minutes. You can do a lot of work. And then you still have another 30, 40 minutes to do the flushing and the deep tissue and the feel good stuff. And we, everybody's experience is going to be different. And it's irresponsible to think any other way, in my opinion. So, meaning, uh, like the way I describe it to people is, you know, if you if you stub your toe right after you got fired from your job, and then you stub your toe right after you won the lottery, which one's going to hurt worse? Okay. And so then that comes back to the nervous system and the nervous system's response and how the nervous system is reacting to the stimulus that it's given. Right. So going back to the stubbing toe thing, which is apparently uh, my favorite metaphor right now. Um, if you are in a state of chronic stress, your pain is going to increase. And if you are the opposite, then your pain is going to be a lot less, you know? So like, uh, you know, I'm going to use these uh, collegiate runners as an example. So they're not only running at an elite level. Like these guys are, and gals are competing right along Olympic athletes. They're fast. So not only are they competing at an elite level, but they are also going to school full time. Some of them have jobs. So their, their pain from their dysfunction is going to be worse because they are under their nervous system is under a high load of stress. Okay. And so like the stress response goes deep too. And so there's, it's hard for me to kind of stay on track with this initial podcast, which is about the nervous system as it pertains to massage therapists, because it can go in a myriad of different directions, right? Because when you start talking about stress, that's a whole other thing, right? So, you know, if you think about getting chased by a tiger and you are getting chased by a tiger, that's the same physiological response in your body, right? And so, if that stress continues, then the pain is going to be more substantial in that dysfunction. And then, you know, part of the uh, problem that I have in my profession is that some of these runners see other people before they see me. And these other people tell them stressful things like you have stress fractures or you have tendonitis, or you have plantar fasciitis, but they're not doing a detailed assessment. And so these runners, who, and it's like essentially their job to run because they have uh, these scholarships to these colleges, right? And so if you just, if you don't do a detailed assessment with this person, and you don't second guess yourself or, you know, that doesn't, this is a new phrase. I might be making it up, but third guess yourself, I guess. If you don't, if you're not constantly 
like second guessing yourself and trying to figure out what could possibly be the problem. And then you just say something that's going to add more stress to that person. That's going to be, uh, for lack of a better term, damaging to that person. Like saying that you have tendonitis or you just have plantar fasciitis or you have stress fractures and you just blow them off. Then they, that adds so much more stress to that person. When in reality, what I find is most of the tendonitis, quote unquote, or most of the uh, plantar fasciitis, quote unquote, is nerve entrapment from the either the tibial nerve or the peroneal nerve. And so if I, if I quote unquote, release those tissues and uh, get that nerve gliding through the tissues freely, then that alleviates the threat response to those tissues because that's an afferent signal. That's a signal going up to the brain. That's, that's you telling the brain, Hey, this is safe now. And once that nerve starts moving freely, then it's no longer sending that signal to the brain. It's no longer saying, hey, there's something wrong down here and you need to pay attention to it. And then those symptoms are alleviated. And I've had people that have been working with uh, one person or another person for weeks at a time. And then I do my assessment. I figure out what the actual problem is. I get that nerve moving freely through the tissues. And within 10 minutes, all of their symptoms go away. When they've been working with, for, with this other person for weeks. And so that is, uh, that's one of the major qualms that I have is, are you looking at the site of pain or are you looking for what is causing that pain because that's two different things and so kind of to, to finish up here my education course uh, that i'm doing at the end of may is going to go through a detailed assessment to help you figure out and resolve a lot of pain in people I'm like, and just being honest, like when I started out as a massage therapist, I probably had a 50% success rate, 50-50. I mean, that's not very good. And, but I was just guessing. I was just guessing and I was using my intuition. And, you know, a lot of times I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. And it was incredibly frustrating. So fortunately for me, and I was able to find the smartest people on earth and I was able to uh, learn from the smartest people on earth in person. And then the more I learned, the more that success rate started to climb. And it's just from knowledge of how the human body works. And to be honest, a majority, a vast majority of the education that I have received over the years has been outside the traditional massage therapy profession and the traditional massage therapy education. I would say probably 90% of the education that I have received does not count towards my massage therapy license. Cause in Arizona, I don't know where it is uh, or how it is where you guys are, but in Arizona, you have to have 25 hours of continuing education every two years in order to retain your massage therapy license. Uh, in, in, 2017, 2018, and 2019, I was doing roughly 150 hours of education a year. And 
I had to, I had to make, make a diligent effort to make sure that at least some of it counted towards that traditional massage therapy education, which is where, you know, rock tape education is my go-to. If I am coming up on the, uh, the date of my license renewal and I am behind on education, I can jump on that rock tape website and I can find an education course that's by me or online now because of the pandemic and take that course and get up to speed on the hours that I need. And, but I'm also getting a valuable education from them because, uh, um, the guys that are the head of the education department over there, uh, Steve Capobianco and uh, Ethan Chrysworth, they are at the forefront of the information that is coming out on fascia, the nervous system, uh, sensory input, strength training, all that kind of stuff. So it's invaluable. And uh, going back to that, uh, my education course here. So we're going to spend the first day doing an introduction to uh, neurological muscle testing. And because the, in my opinion, the three pillars of pain are uh, physical, which is uh, muscle, ligament, and tendon dysfunction, uh, physiological, which is uh, inflammation. That's really important and often overlooked. And, you know, once again, shout out to uh, Dr. Perry Nicholson for uh, driving that home because that's incredibly important. And then uh, emotional pain. That's the, that's the big third pillar that's often overlooked. We, we don't address emotional pain enough because we don't think that it exists. But we've all, we have a lot of metaphors to talk about emotional pain. Uh, one of them is uh, that guy's a pain in the neck. The other one, my stomach's all tied up in knots. I have a broken heart. I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Like one of my favorite quotes on that is uh, from Dr. Joe Dispenza, where thoughts is a language of the mind. Emotions are the language of the body. And so, you know, traumatic events can uh, be stored in the body and they can cause emotional pain because that pain is easier to deal with than the traumatic event. Um, and so if you want to get uh, deep into the research on that, you can uh, look up Dr. John Sarno. He has multiple books out on that. Um, there's another book, uh, The Body Keeps Score. That's a pretty uh, popular one. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it gets intense. And it's stuff um, that we don't address in any, any profession. Any like massage therapist, uh, physical therapist, chiropractic. It's, not, it's largely ignored. And I think it's incredibly important. And so my course is going to be um, the assessment of the three pillars of pain. And it's uh, my course is intended to be a, a jumping off point to whatever rabbit hole you want to go down, because there are some rabbit holes, man. Like this is like red pill, blue pill type stuff. So if you're happy with the blue pill and you're happy just doing remedial massage on people um, and then this is, this is not the course for you. If you're a massage therapist and you have been frustrated and you're, you're confused as to no matter how hard you work on these people, their back pain is still there or you know, the, a big thing that I saw early in my career and that I see in other massage therapists right now is they do a lot of work on that person 
that person leaves, they send a text message back an hour or two later saying, Hey, my symptoms are back. That was so frustrating to me. And that is another rabbit hole that you can go down is the neurological muscle testing rabbit hole. I mean, I went deep, I went deep in multiple directions and my uh, success rate is a lot higher. And I want to, the, my purpose on this planet is to help as many people as possible get out of pain and stay out of pain. And the way that I can do that is by sharing the knowledge that I've accumulated and teaching you how to integrate this into your current practice to where you finally start to get the results that you want, which will ultimately give you the practice that you want. And, and I can only speak for me, but once I started getting the results that I was looking for, then the fulfillment that I felt every single day at my job went through the roof. And uh, to the point where I really don't have a problem working every single day. I love my job. It's exhausting because I put a lot of energy into it, as I'm sure you do. Uh, but my goal with this education is to give you a jumping off point to get you curious and to get you started. And I am, uh, I do not, how do I say this? I am not stingy with the information that I have learned and who and where I got it from. Like the last couple slides in my education course are all of the books that I've read that I found helpful and all of the education courses that I've taken. And I want you guys all to take that stuff too. But I think that you, at first you need to experience results and you need to get interested and you need to get curious. And that's what the purpose of this education course is, is to get you interested, to get you curious and to get you going down all these different other rabbit holes, taking that red pill. We need to, we need to uh, improve on, we need to raise our level of uh, proficiency in the profession. And I think, uh, this is the way to do it. And so, um, that's kind of my rant on the nervous system. Um, the next podcast that comes out is, uh, going to be on muscles and, um, subsequent podcasts up until I release this education course are going to be on all kinds of different subjects. Um, I might even do uh, case studies to, uh, kind of get you guys interested in that manner because uh like showing you giving you a good idea of who i'm working with and what i'm working with and successes that i've had and failures that i've had because that's really important too i mean you know my my success rate is not 100 percent. i have a couple clients right now where i am really frustrated and but it doesn't compare to the amount of frustration that they have because they've been dealing with these issues for years and they've been blown off by any number of practitioners that you could possibly think of. And just the plain and simple fact that you as a practitioner care about them enough to where you just say, I don't know, but I'm going to try and find out and I'm going to learn as much as I can about you to make sure that we can get you back to what you are passionate about running, swimming, climbing, bike riding, whatever it is, we're going to do whatever we can. And, uh, yeah, so that's my goal. Um, so robust human movement.com is my website. Uh, the, the, just click on the education tab and, uh, my landing page is right there. And like I said before, it's the uh, last weekend of May. It's going to be here in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I hope to see you guys there. All right. And I'll see you guys on the next podcast. Thank you.